open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. Hopefully you've got it bookmarked by now. And you know what? Uh, as we would say in Santa Ana, uh, abran sus libros a Jonas capítulo 3. And everybody said amen, right? Uh, now listen, at, at this point, Jonah has been commissioned by God to go to Nineveh and call out against its violence and evil. He disobeys and flees to Tarshish. And, and we, the church, are, are symbolized through Jonah. Nineveh is Southern California. Tarshish is anywhere we'd go to potentially flee our California mission. And I'm not going to mention any Midwest states or anything like that. We've exhausted that. But as Jonah flees, he goes down, down to Tarshish, down into the ship, down to the bottom of the sea, reaches rock bottom. And with Jonah's theology, his poor theology at that, the get you get what you deserve theology, he resigns himself to death. I deserve at this point to die. Yet, what does God do? But saves him. He sends a big fish, not a whale. Last thing I'll say about the fish in this sermon. Yeah, that's right. And that leads to a song of praise to be put in his heart. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And after three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, God speaks to the fish, the end of chapter two. Oh, I did say whale just now, didn't I? Forty lashes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God speaks to the fish and spits him out, vomits him out onto the shore. It's a resurrection of sorts, a new life. Which brings us here to chapter three, which is, in many ways, it is a parallel of chapter one. Jonah, if you haven't noticed yet, it is is a literary brilliant book. It's brilliant. And so we see this parallel of chapter 1 here in chapter 3. So with that, would you read along with me in Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah rose. And went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you as a merciful God, a God who's far merciful than we could ever really imagine. God is far merciful than we could ever dare to believe, yet we have believed that you are that merciful and so much more. Lord, we know that that mercy comes through Christ, so I pray tonight that we would behold him once again, that you would reveal him to us, and that you would increase in us an affection for him that leads to an affection for our neighbors a passion for our city that is even, even if just, but an echo of yours. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Verse 2. Jonah is recommissioned by God, just like chapter 1, verse 2, almost the exact same commission, except verse 1 just tells him to call out against their violence. And then verse 3, just like in chapter 1, verse 3, Jonah rose to respond to the Lord. Except in this case, he actually went to Nineveh instead of fleeing to Tarshish. And this time he preaches. And so also here in chapter 3, Jonah has confrontations with pagans, just like he did on the ship to Tarshish. And in both instances, he looks worse than the pagans. And both instances show that he doesn't really know how to talk to or or how to relate to the unbelievers that God's put into his path. Now, in my my day job, in in my full-time 9-to-5, Monday through Friday job, I have to go to a lot of networking events. Do any of you ever have to do networking events? If you do, you know they're awful. I can't stand them. It's, it's, it's the kind with you know, fancy appetizers and, and, and beverages, and everybody stands around in their business casual attire uh, talking to everybody, just standing there tr- trying to get conversations to, to get one another's business. And, and every time I arrive, just this panic arises within me because I don't want to be the guy standing off to the side alone. And so I look for other people who are standing off to the side alone. And invariably, there never is. Everybody's already in a conversation. I'm just going, oh man, how am I going to get into a conversation? I don't want to be that guy who's off to the side. So in order to get into a conversation, I have to butt into a conversation that's already happening. But because nobody there is actually interested in getting to know one another, that conversation is invariably like two minutes long. And so the cycle resumes again, and the panic arises, and i got to find somebody else to talk to and do this for like an hour. They're the worst. <laughs> and, and, and you see Jonah, and you've heard this before, when, when he was around his people, he lit up. He was, he was alive, like we've heard before. If he lived in modern times, he would be 
the Sunday preacher. He would have a blog and a podcast of his own. He would, he would be uh, influential. There would be a, a lot of people listening to him. He might have even been a better small group leader than Ron Boomsma. I don't know. Where, <laughs> but, but listen. But listen, put him into a context with a bunch of wicked pagans, a bunch of unbelievers, and he was worse than me at a networking event. But it's what God had called him to. And friends, if, if you're here, you're here, and by here I mean in your city because God has you here. In Santa Ana, in Pasadena, in, in Orange, God has purposefully put you in your city. And you probably love your church in that city. You, you, you're fine being called to your city because you love your church. But if Jonah is symbolic of us, the local church, then, then Jonah 3 arrests our attention and reminds us that your church exists for more than your Sunday gathering. Your church exists for more than your Sunday gathering. Sunday gathering is a high point of the week. It, it, it is more significant than, than most of us even really realize. But it's not the only thing we exist for. God, God has called you. You, you exist to not only be in your city, but to go deep into your city. Not only to go into your city, but to speak to your city. But listen, the, the best among us are hardly better than Jonah, if we're honest. Our churches exist for more than our Sunday gathering, but when we consider what that entails on a personal level, most of us probably panic a little bit. Or at the very least, we're tempted to run or, or, or avoid or do what we can to step away from. God has you in your city for more than Sunday mornings, but, but maybe you have no unbelieving friends. And the thought of making some with the kind of people who live in Southern California, are you kidding me? Or you're fine mixing up with un unbelievers, but in your heart of hearts, you're terrified of telling them about Jesus and about what God's word says about their manner of life. Or, or, or you've just read enough headlines and you've reached the conclusion that that californians people like your your pothead neighbor or the raging feminist down the street they're just i don't know they're just lost cause just beyond the reach of god's mercy but there's good news here in jonah 3 there's a lot of good news here in Jonah 3. More than anything else, it teaches us about a God whose mercy exceeds our wildest imaginations. That's the whole point of Jonah 3, is, is verse 10, for us to read verse 10 and go, what? Are you kidding? Are, are you kidding? We, we encounter a God so merciful that you don't need to be better in order for him to use you. You just need to respond to his call. Whether or not you're good at it, I don't know. You have a merciful God behind you. So with that, I've got 
three points for you tonight from Jonah 3. I, I preached four points in Pasadena last week, so I'm actually in sermon point debt. So <laughs> somebody's got to give me a credit. Uh, three, three points. One, go into your city. Two, speak to your city. Three, behold God's mercy in your city. Three, three directives from Jonah chapter 3 for us to learn from and hopefully, by God's grace, take away from tonight. Number one, go into your city. So, so Jonah arrives on the border of Nineveh, right? And, and he goes a day's journey into Nineveh. Okay, Nineveh is, what, three days' journey wide. Most people can walk about 20 miles in a single day. So we're talking about a city that is 60 miles wide. Santa Ana is six miles wide and six miles square. So it's, but 360,000 people live in that 36 square miles. Nineveh is way bigger than our city. And Jonah travels a day into this huge city. Jonah doesn't call out from the border. He goes into the heart of the city. And, and friends, let me just say at the outset, if you live outside the city uh, that your church exists in, and just about the only time that you're in your city is on Sunday morning or for a small group, then, then you're standing on the border of your city. Or if you do live in the city that your church is in, but you retreat into your home and, and rarely engage with your neighbors or with the life of this city, then, then you might be standing on the border of your city. Friends, there is a physical, tangible nature to what God has called us to, to use our feet and walk into whatever messes exist in our neighborhoods. If, if you read the other minor prophets, though most of the prophets, their message is directed right at the Israelites, nevertheless, God has a concern for the plight of the lowly and the needy and the widow and the foreigner. And, and if you look at Jonah 1, the original commission, God tells Jonah to go and speak against their violence. Violence has victims. God is concerned for the plight of the suffering in your city. And he's positioned you to move toward them in love. And here's the thing. From the perspective of the unbeliever, your neighbor probably expects to, sh expects to see you showing kindness and mercy to the lowly. If they know you're a Christian, they have an expectation that you will move toward need and suffering and to those who are down and out. Just look at chapter 1. The, the ship's captain finds Jonah sleeping. Is this, somehow knowing that he's a religious man, he's flabbergasted. Why? Because he expects Jonah to use the resources of his faith to help them out. He says, you're, 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 you're a man who believes in a God, right? Why are you sleeping? Why aren't you helping us? One commentator says, when the world only sees us evangelizing those outside the church, they don't see it as the greatest act of love we could possibly do, though it is the greatest act of love we could possibly do. They just see us being selfish 
trying to increase the size of our congregations, our budgets, and our influence. But when we're actually pouring ourselves out, our time, our money, our love into the lives of the suffering and the poor, oddly enough, that's when they see the gospel embodied. You you don't believe like they do, yet they see you pouring yourself out for them, using the resources of what you believe, of your community, to help their estates. You're impoverishing yourself in order that they might be brought up. And, and, and that's when they see the love of Christ. And this is, believe it or not, this is the image of Jesus in the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. This is the heart of Christ. This is the heart of Christ, friends. And this is something that we, as a church, we talked about this at a regional assembly of elders a a couple of months ago, but after the pandemic, as we sort of retreated into our homes and our rhythms of engagement with the city, this is something we have to intentionally do. In in Santa Ana, we're, we're intentionally trying to do this, to push out into our city, to make an intentional effort to move into, into our city, and it's not easy. And this is another one of those moments where, just like we heard in the first sermon on chapter one, where we have to be careful not to confuse providence with permission. If you don't have any unbelieving friends, don't confuse that with God giving you permission not to love the lost in your city. If you live outside your city, don't confuse that with God giving you permission not to go into your city and extend the love of Christ. If the pandemic did drive you into your home and disrupted your rhythms of life among your neighbors, don't confuse that with permission to not make an effort to reconstruct new habits among your neighbors. This requires effort. It requires a little bit of one foot in front of the other kind of movement. And on that note, I'm not standing here calling you to relieve all of the suffering in your city. It's too tall a task. To befriend all the unbelievers in your neighborhood. Just go. Just start. Take some steps toward the center of your city. Make plans to do that right when you get back down from the mountain. Don't delay. Now, you're called to go into your city toward your neighbors, but also to speak to your neighbors. This is the second point. Speak to your city. So finally, after two commissionings, a voyage to Tarshish, a storm at sea, a three-day retreat in a fish, and a three-day, well, a one-day journey into Nineveh, Jonah finally preaches to Nineveh, and it is the most bare minimum, pitiful excuse for a sermon that has ever been preached. Look at, look at verse, verse 4. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. 
Sermon done. Put down your Bible, walk away. He's done. In the original Hebrew, this is only five words. He said five words and he walked away. The word translated overthrown in Hebrew, it's also used to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, notoriously sinful cities, just like Nineveh in Genesis 19. So, so Jonah's saying, Nineveh, you have 40 days until God wipes you out. That's what he comes and says. In other words, Jonah preached short and Jonah preached judgment. It's what he did. Why Jonah said so few words, it's not explained. And because the author didn't explain it, doesn't give any, any, any illumination to it, we're not going to try and speculate as to why. All we know is that Jonah didn't say much, but he spoke. And that's what we are meant to see, that Jonah did speak. He didn't say much. He didn't even say much right. But he spoke. In our cities, God has called us to proclaim his message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know exactly what the message is that he's commissioned us to proclaim. He tells us in, in Matthew 28 and in Acts 1.8 exactly what our role and message is. The point isn't how good you are at speaking that message. The point is that you speak. Around June of last year, uh, Jeff and I were at a pastor's meeting with a bunch of other pastors in Santa Ana. Uh, it, was, it was shortly after the George Floyd riots, and so uh, there was this organization of about 30 pastors from the city who, who came together to, to just pray for our city. And one pastor who is fairly influential in our, in our city, he got up and he said, you know, guys and, and ladies, uh, he said, our people know the gospel. He said, we stand up every Sunday and we preach it over and over. And you know what? Our people know it by now. They know it. We need to stop preaching so much and we need to get out into the streets and jeff and i just stood there like whoa <laughs> now there's nothing wrong as we've established with getting out into our cities in fact it's 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 a responsibility of our church of our individual churches but there's everything wrong with the suggestion that we have filled the tank of our church or or our city their, their capacity to hear the gospel or their need to hear the gospel, to, to hear the whole counsel of God. Friends, if we cease to proclaim the gospel within and outside of our church, we cease to be the church at all. The proclamation of the gospel message is fundamental to who we are as a church, to the essence of what we are as the bride of Christ. And just, just a quick note. Please never take for granted that your church prioritizes the gospel. One of the things that I learned in planting a church is that it doesn't just happen. After sitting under the discipleship of, of Tim Lambros and Derek Overstreet, planting a church gave me the appreciation of the fact that it is a week-in, week-out intentional effort. Effort. 
that the gospel remains central. And gospel centrality in a church, it is neither common nor natural. It is neither common nor natural. Friends, be so grateful that you are in churches where you encounter Christ every Sunday and every time you go to small group, you are taught to live your life seeing through the lens of the gospel. You are reminded of the gospel. You are washed in the gospel week after week after week. And it's what you need even when you don't, even when you don't know it. If we were to cease to proclaim the gospel within and outside of our church, we cease to be the church at all. And, and it's all well and good, and we can nod our heads so long as we're saying we, right? Yeah, if we cease to proclaim the gospel, but when it, when it, comes, when it becomes me, when I face the music that fundamental to my Christian identity is speaking the gospel, it gets a little more real, doesn't it? When, when Ron was suggesting this series, he sent us a, a chain of emails, and, and he sent me a suggested title for this message, which I thought was brilliant. It was, One Voice to Change the City. In Jonah 3, God had one person in mind to speak to Nineveh. One person. And if not Jonah... And though every Christian is called to proclaim the message of God's mercy, God has called you. Our churches at large, yes, but also you. To your neighbors, to your city, to those neighbors around you. If not you, then who? It brings to mind David and Eric, our friends for me. It's, it is uncomfortable for me to tell them about Jesus and the claim that he makes on their lives, but if not me, then who? One voice to change the way they think and believe and respond to the God who created them. And you may be no good at it. What you speak may be hardly better than Jonah. And listen, that's okay. That's okay. Why? Because of the staggering mercy of God. This is the third point. Behold God's mercy toward your city. And this is, this is, this is the point of chapter 3. And in fact, if, if I could, this is the point of Jonah. To behold this God whose passion for the world makes us uncomfortable because it is so white hot. We don't yet know the full scope of Jonah's motivation, why he ran, why he said so little, why he preached only judgment. I'm going to leave that to Derek for tomorrow morning. What we can deduce at this point, at the very least, is that Jonah did not expect Nineveh, Nineveh to repent. <laughs> he said, 40 days and you're wiped out. See you later, I'm gone. <laughs> and then, look at, look at verse, verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. He, Jonah didn't even say God. He said, he said, you have 40 days and you're wiped out. And they believed God. And, and Jonah's going, 
what? <laughs> he, he preached judgment like a kid yelling, cannonball, to, to everyone sitting around the pool. Listen, kids don't yell cannonball as a polite warning to say, ladies and gentlemen, I'm about to jump into the pool, splash, so take your time, get out of the way, so you're not inconvenienced. No, no, they're saying, all you boring old adults, yet a couple seconds, and your books will be wet, and you will be annoyed. (laughs) Jonah misunderstood God's judgment. He misunderstood God's wrath. He came in announcing the, the foregone conclusion of God's wrath. He came into Nineveh saying, here it comes, here it comes. He was a prophet though. He he should have known that when God's judgment is proclaimed and warned of, it is invariably followed by his mercy. And I was going to speak a little bit about the, the book of Hosea. And if you haven't read Hosea recently, go read it again this week. It'll knock your socks off. You want to see a merciful, you want to see a merciful God. It'll bring you to tears to behold that kind of a merciful God. But suffice it to say, when you read through the minor prophets or the prophets at all, you see this cycle occurring over and over and over and over. The prophet's warning of judgment and then temporal, temporary judgment coming and that leads to repentance and God's mercy and restoration. And then they fall away again, warning of God's judgment, repentance, restoration, over and over and over Warning of God's judgment leading to mercy. Second Peter 3 speaks of the day of the Lord. Described by Peter in 2 Peter 3, 7 as the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The day of judgment. But listen, Peter says in verse 9, He says, don't see the fact that judgment hasn't yet come as a delay in a foregone conclusion. He says, it's his patience. Not wishing that any should perish, perish, but that all should reach repentance. Whenever God's judgment is proclaimed, it's a precursor to his mercy. It's an opportunity for repentance to take place. And when repentance does take place, his mercy is poured on in waves. In other words, until judgment occurs, all of life is God's mercy for every single one of us, for every single one of our neighbors. It's God's mercy that he delays judgment. It's God's mercy that he even gave Nineveh 40 days, even though they took two seconds that he hasn't yet brought judgment on our neighbors is his mercy. If you, if you can't fathom God's mercy for your neighbors, you don't have eyes to see the mercy he's already shown. It's God's mercy that he would move anyone to repentance. That he moved you or me to repentance. We're, we're all shining examples of God's mercy. And, and, and if we forget to see that, yet, yet cease to believe that God would show mercy on our neighbors and we're just like Jonah who had received God's mercy and been saved and then goes to his neighbors and said, yeah, you're going to be judged. I 
That's what happened to Nineveh. They, they repented. And, and, and what Jonah had likely not for one second expected, nowhere in Scripture will you find a response to, to preaching or a prophetic message like this. Every living human. Verse 5, from the greatest to the least, repented and believed God. Including the government. Put that in today's context. <laughs> Gavin Newsom repented and believed God. But, but we, we laugh because it just seems so outlandish, right? Not for God. Jonah said, here comes the cannonball of God's judgment, you wicked, disgusting people. And every last one of them got out of the way. You know how in movies, when a, when a big bomb goes off, you see a, a huge shockwave spread outward, knocking down everything in its path? How I picture this scene in my mind is Jonah speaking five words, and a shockwave of repentance spreads through the city. Having gone 20 miles into the center of the city, dropped a bomb of God's judgment, and a shockwave of God's mercy leading to repentance exploded out from him. And having repented, the greatest stroke of mercy then appears. The king says in verse 9, who knows? I mean, he, he's going, I hope, I hope this works. <laughs> who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What do you know? Despite all their violence and all their thievery and all their bigotry and all, all of their oppression and all of the things that made them disgusting and evil and wicked despite all of that verse 10 God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it that is amazing that is amazing Friends, the, the brevity of Jonah's sermon and, and, and the sheer size and evil of Nineveh are intended to teach us one thing. Romans 9.15, God will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. God gave mercy to Nineveh because he wanted to give them mercy. He was not limited by how sinful they had become. He was not limited by how many of them there were. He was not limited by the quality or the length of Jonah's sermon. He wasn't even limited by Jonah's angry, resentful heart, which we encounter in chapter 4. He will not be limited by the wickedness of Southern California or our own abilities. He will show mercy to our neighbors if we but speak the message of the gospel to them. Do you believe that, friends? He will. But you say, yeah. But I've never seen God move a whole city to repentance. How do I know that this, doesn't, this wasn't just one instance where God decided to be merciful, where this fickle Old Testament God just decided, yeah, I'll be merciful this time. The cross of Christ assures us that being merciful is not just what God does, it is who He is. Ephesians 2, you, speaking of you, were dead in your sins, following Satan, to paraphrase. 
carrying out your sinful passions. You were children of wrath. Sound familiar? Sounds a lot like Nineveh. We're a bunch of former, former Ninevites. Ephesians 2.4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus, his son. Mercy is who he is. Those verses said another way, he sent his son to give mercy to all who would believe in him so that in the coming ages his mercy might be known to all future generations so that all would know he is a God of mercy and he will show mercy to whom he will show mercy. We should believe he will show mercy to our neighbors through the proclamation of the gospel. On a Saturday morning, any, any given Saturday morning, you go into downtown Santa Ana, and, and there are at least a few people with bullhorns preaching, mostly in Spanish, and it's hellfire and brimstone preaching. And they're just walking the streets back and forth, and everybody's kind of trying to get out of their way, you know, trying not to, not to capture their, their attention. And, and, and we might have a couple of suggestions for them, but you've got to hand it to them. I, I'm prone to see them and go, well, they're doing it wrong. Well, but they're speaking. They're speaking to our city. And I can only assume that they're speaking because they believe that if they speak, God will show mercy to their neighbors. At least that's what I hope. But listen, before we close, I'm not asking you to go and be a street preacher. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? Most of you are like, oh my goodness. Jonah 3 is encouraging you, calling you <clears throat> to have a courageous conversation with that unbelieving neighbor, to speak to them, to tell them about Jesus. Jonah 3 is telling you to speak to your city and to trust the God of unimaginable mercy to be merciful to them. If you don't know how to interact with your unbelieving neighbors, if it is uncomfortable for you, your merciful God is with you. The one who called you to it is the one who creates the outcomes. He doesn't leave that responsibility to you. Listen, though many friends may be called away from the California mission and many have, we should have a rock-solid expectation that God will call many more to it. That as we speak, God will show mercy, and there will be more people at the next California celebration, if there ever is one, I don't know, if there ever is another one, who right now don't believe in Jesus. That God is preparing and has planned to show mercy to as you speak to them. Friends, I came, my family and I, we came to California because there is nowhere in the United States with more people for God to mercifully save. That's why we came, and it's why we're still here 
And, and this is why we're saying we're never leaving. Unless the Lord calls us away, which we have no anticipation of. But I, I don't know about you, but if, you, if I have a choice of which fireworks show to go to on the 4th of July, I want to go to the biggest one around. <laughs> Friends, we exist for more than Sunday gatherings. And when we lean into that, no matter how good we are at it, we should expect one grand fireworks show of God's mercy in our city. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that, that your mercy even covers our ability. It covers our motives. It covers our, our past running away from what you've called us to. You are a God who is far more merciful than we, we've ever really comprehended. But Lord, I pray that we would comprehend just a little bit more with every passing day of our lives. Would we have an increasing confidence that you will add more and more men and women to the California mission? Would you give us a sense of deep, burning, white-hot passion for our neighbors as we consider your white-hot passion for our city? May we go into our cities. May we speak to our cities. And may we behold your mercy to our city. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.